Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I am the special special temporary primary host. I think I got that right. Correct? Yeah. Un- I, unions okay with that? Sure. Perfect. Uh, today I am joined by Greg. He is currently the permanent guest co-host for now and a prominent leader in the, uh, what's the name of your union again? The Stronger by Science podcast co-host union. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And and I assume you do great work with that organization who I'm on very good terms with. Um, we've got a lot to cover in today's show. Before we get to that, uh, if you enjoy the show and you would like to support it, there are many ways that you could do that. You could like, rate, or subscribe wherever you happen to get podcasts. You could join our email newsletter. You could do that at strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter. You could use our discount code at Bulk Supplements. If you go to bulksupplements.com and you use the discount code SBSPOD, that'll get you a 5% discount off your entire order. You could subscribe to the Mass Research Review. That is a monthly research review that we are co-authors of. Or you could check out our diet app, which is called Macro Factor, and it does offer a free trial. Uh, so, Greg, how is the road to the stage? Road to the stage is going well. Uh, this past week was a pretty solid week. Uh, hit a new low, uh, 227.2. Uh, and I'm a pound away from a milestone I'm very much looking forward to, the two-thirds waypoint uh, along my journey of this current cut. Um, and yeah, just, just kind of looking back at the week, a big bright spot was that, uh, this past week was the, the busy week in my month with mass writing. Um, and it ended up being far busier than I anticipated. So, uh, if you subscribe to mass, just here's a little peek ahead, uh, a slight change in, um, in format is coming. So, we're going to start having a cover story for each issue that uh, will also be published concurrently on Stronger by Science. And so I'm doing the the cover story for this upcoming month. And uh, I won't tell you what it is yet. Uh, I, I teased it on Instagram a few days ago, but if you missed it, it was a story and they are fleeting and ethereal by nature. So uh, you'll find out June 1st otherwise. But anyway, um, the... <laughs> the the work required to get to the point that I could start writing um ended up being a lot more than I anticipated <laughs> so a a busy week turned into uh a week borderish bordering on hellish uh in terms of of uh, total workload and previously in situations like that I would have a tendency to just kind of like stress eat to uh to numb the stress and and uh, just bad vibes that I'm experiencing, and uh, I I did not do that this past week, and I've noticed over time as this cut has progressed that that is a skill that I have have gained and developed over time, where you know I've I found uh, other ways of of coping with stress and making myself feel better. Um, rather than food. So, you know, I like not only was was did the last week go well, but it went well in spite of an obstacle that I think previously would have tripped me up. Uh so yeah, I I feel good about that overall. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, like you mentioned, it's been a a crazy week, very busy in the uh 
the cluster of entities associated with the Stronger by Science universe. And listeners might wonder, is that why Eric stumbled over half the words in the introduction? <laughs> uh, I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to leave that up to interpretation. Uh, but yes, I theoretically could have gotten more sleep the last few days. Would have been nice. But uh, but anyway, yeah, I think this is going to be a really nice issue of Mass. I, I think your cover story turned out great. And, and there's a lot of good studies this month. Yes, sir. Um, now, Road to Athens, uh, would you even believe it? I don't have any updates. I've barely had an opportunity to step foot in a gym the last few days, but that's okay. Uh, no steps backward, which is good. I like that. Uh, what about feats of strength? Feats of strength. So, yeah, uh, last episode, I mentioned some big gym lifts from Jessica Bittner. Uh, her competition was this past week, and uh, as expected, she did very well hit a new uh, unofficial world record for both the squat and the deadlift in her weight class. That's the uh, the 76 kilo class, I believe. Uh, so she squatted 217 and a half kilos, which is uh, 479, 480 pounds, uh, and uh, deadlifted 252 and a half kilos, which is like 556 pounds. Um, so yeah, uh, great performance for her. Looked like she had more in the tank for everything. Um, so, you know, if if she is pushed at Worlds, which I suspect she might be. Um, like, Worlds is coming up, and I expect that her and... Uh, uh, what's her name from New Zealand? Uh, Tango Tea, uh are, are probably going to be gearing up for quite the battle in that weight class. Um, so, yeah, we'll... We'll see uh, what's to come, but uh, great performance from her. And uh, then let's circle back to Julius Maddox's world, uh, where we haven't visited in a while. But uh, yeah, he he recently hit um, 361 uh, kilos or 796 pounds uh, in the gym for, for bench press, which I don't need to contextualize that. Those are just just nutty numbers. Uh, we're still, we're still waiting for the first 800 pound bench in competition. And, uh, you know, once again, he looks like he's gearing up for it and, uh, I hope he does it. Awesome. Yeah. It's getting ever closer to that 800 number that, uh, that everybody's looking forward to. Yep. So I'm, I'm excited to see that. Um, all right, moving on to the content for today's episode, we've got a couple coaches corner segments. So, uh, I feel like you and I have just been like up to our ears in the research literature the last few days with what we're working on. So it'll be a nice little change of pace to uh, shift focus a little bit and be a little bit more, a little bit more practical and applied for these coaches corner segments. Of course, they're all informed by research to some extent, but you know, not a, a nitty gritty research review. So for my coaches corner, I want to talk about a dietary strategy that I've used, um, it almost kind of has felt like a very natural default way of eating for me whenever I'm cutting or uh, just trying to kind of passively reduce calorie intake. So, uh, for example, if I notice that my my body weight is starting to creep up and I'm not tracking macros at the time, uh, I might implement this strategy to stop that upward trajectory. Or if I'm about to enter a cutting phase, I might proactively implement this strategy and there's not a great word for it. So instead, I'm just going to use like a kind of like a Mad Libs of just buzzwords here. Uh, 
I think you could kind of refer to it loosely as protein sparing modified time restricted feeding. Uh, it sounds like kind of a nonsense jumble of buzzwords, like I said, but what I am really getting at with this strategy is the fact that OMAD, one meal a day uh, as an eating pattern, is getting relatively popular. I mean, it's not like huge, but there are more people doing it now than I can ever recall in the past uh, and doing it explicitly as an intentional eating strategy. Yeah, do, do, doing it intentionally. I right. mean, go back far enough. I'm sure there are plenty of people who are only eating one meal per day, but for, for different reasons. Yeah, but but it's uh, I've never before seen as many people who say, I am intentionally restricting myself to one meal a day as a dietary strategy for fitness purposes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I really do get the draw because if you've ever experimented with that approach, uh, you'll generally find that you end up doing a lot of very passive calorie restriction simply by having such a restrictive feeding window. You know, like time-restricted feeding, the most common application is like an eight-hour feeding window, which honestly is not that tight of a feeding window. I mean, that's basically like skip one meal at the beginning or end of the day, and you're you're in that window, like pretty much no problem. Uh, but, you know, some people will say, well, Instead of doing an eight-hour feeding window, I'll do six or maybe four. And then uh, one meal a day is is as tight as a feeding window can really get unless you're doing uh, the the high school buffet-style one meal a day where you <laughs> show up to the buffet, spend your $8, and you just sit down for like seven or eight hours and, and eat until they kick you out. Yeah. But aside from that, one meal a day, you're usually talking about a feeding window that's, you know, 60, 90 minutes, something like that. Or, or I mean, if you eat fast enough, they might kick you out after like two hours. Yeah, and that, I that is may, true. And I may or may not have firsthand experience with that. Yeah. Gin Gin Buffet in Moxville, North Carolina. <laughs> you're on notice. You permanently banned me from the lunch buffet in 2009, and I still have not forgotten. Yeah, the, the twin dragon. Maybe they've forgotten. They, they might have. Ooh, next time I'm home, I might roll the dice. The Twin Dragon was a lot more accommodating uh, back, back in my younger years. I mean, you, you could really, really settle in there for quite some time before, <laughs> before you got any attention. Um, but anyway, uh, one meal a day, generally speaking, you're talking about a very tight feeding window. Uh, and it does help with some passive calorie restriction. What I mean by passive is without being overly intentional about your food choices, you might find that simply by eating in a, in a tighter window, it's hard to, to go too far beyond whatever your number is, you know, 2,400, 2,800, 3,200 calories in that single meal. And another benefit specifically with the one meal a day approach is uh, depending on your psychological makeup, it could help you keep your mind off of food throughout the day. Now, I've definitely seen this completely backfire and go the opposite direction, where because you are restricting to one meal a day, throughout the whole rest of the day, all you're thinking about is, damn, sucks I didn't have breakfast. Man, wish I had lunch. So you have to really uh, individualize and think about your personal experience if you're going to implement this type of strategy. For me, uh, as someone who's not that food-focused in nature, 
if I tell myself, hey, I'm having one meal a day, the rest of the day, I just kind of get busy and forget about it and focus on other things. Have some coffee, have some water, maybe a diet soda here and there. It's, it's really not something that I think about frequently and recurrent, recurrently you know, throughout the day. Um, now, here's the problem with one meal a day is it's really not great for protein distribution. Uh, generally speaking, the research would indicate that we would prefer to get three or more large servings of protein throughout the day. So three or more large boluses that are giving us at least, you know, 20, 30, 40 grams of protein a day. And with one meal a day, obviously that's not going to be possible. It's not going to be a, you know, feasible goal to try to make both of those things work. Uh, and that also with one meal a day can put you in a somewhat challenging position where you have to say, well, do I want to have, uh, you know, pre-exercise uh, protein or post-exercise protein? You don't get the ability to have pre and post. And along those lines, you have to, to try to make some difficult decisions of like, do I want to go into this workout totally fueled, but also not overly full? And then how do I have a post-workout recovery meal? It can become very logistically challenging to figure out this one huge meal a day. You know, it can't go right before your workout, but if it goes really far before your workout, you have no peri-workout nutrition at all. Uh, so it can get a little bit challenging logistically. So what I like to do is implement a strategy. And like I said, it's certainly not for everybody, but I like to implement a strategy that in my opinion, kind of gets me the best of both worlds. And so what I do is I will basically do like a protein sparing modified fast until dinner. And what that means is my earlier meals are structured in an extremely protein focused way. So it's either going to be, you know, almost all protein, you know, protein shake, something like that, or it'll be a meal that is just a very lean protein with some fibrous vegetables, right? So maybe you have like uh, an omelet with mostly egg whites, very minimal fat, one or zero yolks, and a bunch of vegetables in there. So all my meals going up toward dinner are going to be almost exclusively protein and maybe some fibrous vegetables in the mix. You might get some trace carbs and fat, you know, outside of that. But generally speaking, we're talking about lean protein and maybe some fibrous vegetables. Uh, and so I'll have maybe a breakfast like that, maybe a lunch like that. And then my dinner ultimately becomes my, my true meal for the day, right? And that's where I have starches, sugars, more fat content. So it's not an extreme macronutrient distribution when you look at the entire day in aggregate. It's just those first couple meal, meals where I'm basically saying, I'm doing one meal a day and just strategically supplementing some protein servings earlier in the day. Uh, and of course, you could invert that if you wanted to. You could wake up, have a really big meal, and then just have a couple targeted protein servings later in the day. But I personally like to uh, to have dinner as my meal because psychologically that helps me out a lot. Whenever I'm tracking closely with my meals and uh, my calorie intake is a little bit low, I find that psychologically I really dislike situations where I notice early in a day like you're running out of calories. Like to me, it's psychologically very, uh, very comforting to know that I've got this sizable dinner that's coming later in the day, yeah. which almost certainly will hold me over till bedtime. So generally speaking, you know, it looks like one meal a day when it comes to that big dinner meal that I like, 
but I am putting those protein boluses earlier in the day so that I have a little bit of the best of both worlds. Like those little protein servings don't really feel like a meal. It's just get it in and move on with your day, not focus on food the whole time. For me, it strikes a nice balance here. Um, and I do this flexibly, you know, so uh, let's say that I've got a really big workout and it's occurring before my dinner, you know, or, or I'm just hungry for the gym, right? So, or hungry before the gym. So hungry for the gym H and before the gym. Hungry for the iron, baby. Exactly. But, yeah. you know, you've got a big workout coming up. You're feeling a little bit low on energy, kind of hungry. Research would indicate that you probably don't want to go into a big workout feeling hunger. Um, it, it, there's some research indicating that hunger as a <laughs> sensation itself could impair performance in resistance training sessions. Uh, so I don't do this with a super rigid focus, right? So I might have a couple protein boluses early in the day and say, you know what, before this workout, I'm going to have some extra carbs and fat, like a little snack rather than a full meal. I'll go into my workout properly fueled, feeling great, and then have my big dinner afterwards. So I don't do this in a really restrictive or strict way. Strict way. Uh, but in my experience, this has been a really helpful way to kind of find that middle ground where I'm able to cut down on some of the mindless snacking throughout the day, which is something that can really catch up with me personally. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm less focused on food throughout the day uh, because I'm just kind of treating it like these little strategic protein feedings rather than sitting down and enjoying an entire meal. Uh, it does tend to be really time efficient. So like my breakfast and lunch, and sometimes will just be a protein shake, like a ready to drink beverage, mm -hmm. uh, which is, I mean, extremely time efficient. Uh, and yeah, I get an opportunity to, to enjoy a large meal in the evening that might theoretically take more preparation time. It's kind of my, my meal for the day where I have to actually put time and effort and focus into cooking and enjoying all those different foods and things like that. And I don't have to stress out about running out of calories super early in the day or getting to a point where I went a little overboard with my breakfast. And then the whole rest of the day, I'm thinking about restricting and restricting and restricting. So, mm -hmm. um, what's really nice about this strategy is you do not necessarily need to deviate from best practices in terms of protein feedings in order to get some of these upsides of that one meal a day approach. Now, the only thing that you're kind of missing out of the purported or perceived benefits of one meal a day is some people really push that idea that like, oh, you got to fast 22 hours a day so that your autophagy is off the charts and you're, you know, all this other stuff. And I, I simply don't subscribe to that set of ideas. I, I don't think that they're based on strong evidence. Um, so from my perspective, you're getting the, the most evidence supported potential benefits of one meal a day without sacrificing the obvious downsides when it comes to peri-workout nutrition and protein feedings. Have you ever tried something like that? <laughs> I have, and, and I was actually going to comment. Uh, do you know who John Kiefer is, or was, was he big when you were just like all up in grad school and not paying attention to stuff? Carb backloading, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what this reminded me of a lot. Um, and I'm not saying that to, to tar your good name. Yeah. Um, I, no, like I, I always thought like, oh yeah, th this seems like a, a practically useful strategy and where, where Kiefer went astray was <laughs> being like, yeah, like th this is basically magic. Uh, right. It, it will make it impossible for you to store fat due to 
some reasons that you know I as a as a physicist understand, but you you plebes never could. Um, so yeah, I I think that uh, it's it's a very valid practical strategy that maybe has previously been oversold uh, by other people, but that that doesn't mean that it doesn't have utility. Yeah, and again, I, I I'm certain, a hundred percent certain that there are a lot of people who would not respond super favorably to this like i have never explicitly like i wouldn't say never but only in rare circumstances do i even bring this up with clients mm -hmm. i much prefer to make adjustments based on their pre-existing eating behaviors and only when we run into uh, a series of obstacles w where this seems to be potentially a useful solution only then do i bring this out it's not like day one enrollment materials for my coaching services. It's like, hey, guess what? You're on the Trexler eating method and this is what it is. Yeah. Uh, and even I don't use this all that often. Like I said, it's kind of strategically implemented uh, in, in some very specific circumstances, but I would suggest that it has no physiological benefit uh, compared to a traditional eating pattern. Uh, but I would suggest that there are physiological benefits if you compare a strict one meal a day strategy versus this kind of modified approach. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the reasons I, I mentioned this, I forgot to, uh, to bring this up, but I reviewed a study that was looking at one meal a day in, in a fairly recent issue of mass. And it was a very short term study. So it's not like you'd say, wow, they lost six kilograms of fat free mass. Cause mm -hmm. like you can only lose so much in like a couple weeks, you know? Uh, I forget it. It was like a one or two week study timeline. Uh, yeah. So the body comp numbers, you couldn't do much with them. But a lot of the data within that particular paper were leaning toward some of the intuitive downsides that you would expect from such a disadvantageous uh, protein feeding strategy. So yeah, I would suggest this is physiologically of of no benefit relative to a standard uh, feeding uh, window or a standard uh, uh, kind of dietary schedule in terms mm -hmm. of meal timing. Uh, but I do think, uh, that there's considerable benefit when you compare it to strict one meal a day eating. Yeah. You, you know, I do, um, I do something similar to, to that from time to time, but generally just with either carbs or fat, mm -hmm. uh, just kind of depending on what I'm hankering for when I'm meal prepping. Um, you know, sometimes I'll make a big batch of meal prep food that has macro splits that are roughly the macro splits I'm aiming for for the day, and then I just eat on that throughout the day. But sometimes I just feel like making higher fat meal prep food, and so I'll eat that earlier in the day and then mostly just eat protein and carbs at night. Or if I want to make a higher carb batch of meal prep, I just eat that earlier in the day and then mostly protein and fat at night. Um... So it's it's kind of the opposite. Like, you know, I, I eat what I want to eat earlier in the day and then just kind of compensate for it later. Uh, and generally, it's not all protein meals and then protein, carbs, fat meals. It's generally, you know, protein and carbs earlier in the day and protein and fat later at night or vice versa. Um, you know, not not driven by uh, any any assumption that that's physiologically preferable. It's just like, yeah trying to hit my macros and then what do I want to make for meal prep? And then, you know, just, just work everything else around that. Um, but yeah, I've, I found that to be a, a pretty practical approach for me as well. Yeah. And a really important thing, the last thing I'll mention here is that 
the underlying psychological processes going on are important. You know, so like if I were going throughout the day saying, you know, I only eat, you know, mostly protein at breakfast and lunch, because actually if you eat carbs at for breakfast, you store a lot of fat and you get diabetes Yeah. or, you know, oh, I, I can't eat fat until one meal a day because I'll get like heart disease. Like it, it's not, uh, there, there is no underlying carb or fat phobia that's baked into this strategy. It's simply just like, you know what? If I sit down for a whole meal here, I might, you know, you know, it, it'll disrupt me from my workflow, take me out of my day, and I might end up eating, you know, maybe two or three hundred calories more than I really need to just kind of get my protein in and, and feel satiated and move on with my day. So it's really just a matter of uh, time efficiency. Uh, and, and just finding a way to get that protein in without uh, feeling like I'm going to be snacking on something for the next 90 minutes. So uh, it, it's purely behavioral, but it's important if if you think that this is going to draw you into some of those um, potentially problematic psychological processes, then just leave it. It's not for you. You know, you got to yeah. find an eating pattern that that is completely compatible with your goals, but also kind of your psychological makeup. Uh, so what's your coach's corner about? Yeah. So, uh, mine is, uh, inspired by a conversation I had yesterday, um, with someone who said like, yeah, I've, I've been, I've been working out a lot more recently. Um, you know, I, I'm not as young as I once was. And now like w one of the issues I'm running into is when I start like an arm workout, uh, you know, go right into kind of hypertrophy rep ranges for tricep work. And man, my, my elbows just really don't like that. Used to be fine. Now, you know, it's, it's just, it's just creakier than it used to be. Um, and so I, I gave him some advice and, uh, I was like, ah, th this would be decent podcast content. So this is roughly a coach's corner about, uh, <laughs> about keeping your joints happy. If you're, a, a creaky boomer like myself and some of your joints don't like you as much as they once did. Um, so to be clear, I'm not making any claims about injury risk, rehabilitation, anything like that. It's just purely, you know, what might give you uh, slightly more uh, pleasurable perceptual sensations during a training session. Um, if you have, you know, joints that that you might um, colloquially describe as as achy or creaky. So th this isn't about like, oh, I have an acute muscle strain. How do I train for that? I have uh, a chronic like tendinopathy issue. How do I train around that? So you know, we're not talking about any of that stuff. Just ah, whatever. Like my my knees are generally fine, but they you know if if I squat heavy in a workout, they don't like that much. So like, what do I do? So, you know, that's, that's what we're talking about here. And I will admit, uh, I, at least in part, uh, learned this approach from John Meadows. Um, and, uh, first, first of all, rest in peace. Uh, you know, he, he was, I think he, he was one of my biggest inspirations for just kind of, I would, I would say just like practical training tips. Like there, there are, there are a lot of people out there in the world who offer uh, one weird trick for X, Y, and Z in the gym. And I, I try to keep pretty open-minded. And if I see something 
even if I think it looks dumb, if it looks fun, I'll try it. <laughs> um, and I gotta say, a lot of those one weird tricks that people throw out uh, seem to have a very poor signal-to-noise ratio. Like, it, it's something that's unique just for the sake of being unique, but doesn't really seem to to do what it's supposed to, doesn't really seem to work that well. Uh but I would recommend looking back through John Meadows's content. I think his one weird tricks that he threw out did have a very excellent signal to noise ratio. He'd be like, yeah, just like try this this weird uh, series of exercises or like particular exercise for your lats. Like, I promise it's going to blow them up. And I'd be like, John, that looks no. But then I try it. I'd be like, God damn it, John, you're a genius. Um, so anyway, I I cribbed this in part from him. Um, cause you know, uh, he, he's spent a lot of his time kind of in the public eye of the fitness industry, uh, in his, in his forties and later, um, you know, so his, his joints weren't as young as they previously had been, but one of the hallmarks of, of his training approach, like if you'd watch a lot of his training videos is he would train heavy and he would train really hard. And so one of the things he was trying to accomplish is like, how can I do that while keeping my joints as happy with me as as they can be? Um, and so the strategy he came up with, which is very simple, uh, but in my experience works really well, is whatever whatever joint you're about to train the muscles around um, that generally doesn't like you, <clears throat> just start with a... I don't know the best wording for this, but just kind of like a non-stressful pump type exercise. So it's not something that's going to take you through any sort of like extreme stretch. It's not going to take, you know, any of your tissues close to their tensile limits. And you're just going to do high reps with it. And importantly, I don't know why this matters, but it seems to matter. You want to do it for both sides of the joint. So, for example, if you were going to do some some triceps training, you'd want to do something for your triceps, but also your biceps, just to kind of warm up everything around your elbow joint. And when I say kind of like a non-stressful type lift, uh, you wouldn't want to do skull crushers, where you're you know taking your elbows into full flexion under heavy load. Um, you know, nothing like that. So, you know, it might be something like rope pushdowns. Um, and, you know, you're, you're just going to start with uh, a couple sets or even just one set of 20, 30 reps relatively close to failure of a triceps exercise. Uh, repeat the process with a biceps exercise. And then from there, you can start moving into heavier stuff. So, you know, that's when you might want to get into your skull crushers for sets of 8 to 12 or, you know, really any other triceps exercise. And don't know why this works, but it works quite well. Um, you know, your tendons seem to be happier, your joints seem to be happier. And uh, one other additional little wrinkle that I would add to this is, so step one, do kind of high rep pump type work across both sides of the joint. Step two, just kind of train normally after that. And then step three, I think, uh, at least I personally experience dividends from ending my training with kind of what I would call like a stretchy type movement. Um, so, you know, you, you are now looking for something that is going to take that joint through a full range of motion, 
and you're generally going to do like paused reps where you can really kind of let your muscles like sink into it, like feel a good stretch in the muscle um, and, and do that to end with. So uh, let's see. An example of how this could work is let's say you have creaky knees. So you're going to start your like knee dominant lower body training um, maybe with just some light knee extensions. And then very important, don't forget, uh, next thing you're going to do is leg curls, warm up your hamstrings as well. And then from there, uh, you know, move into your heavier normal type training and then something to kind of stretch your quads to end with. Uh, one of my go-tos for this is split squats, but generally when you do like uh, rear leg elevated split squats, you're trying to train the, the front leg, the leg that's down. So you try to keep most of your weight shifted forward, but to get a really good stretch in your quads to end with, you want to try to keep a lot of your weight back. So you're, you're keeping a good amount of the weight on your back leg, and for every rep, you're going to go down. You're going to hold that bottom position of the rear leg elevated split squat, squeeze the glute on the back leg, try to get your hips forward, stretch out your quads and hip flexors really well, and then... To initiate the drive up, you're going to drive your front heel through the floor, but you're also going to kick into the bench. Um, so, so it's almost like you're doing a knee extension with your back leg as you're doing kind of a squatting pattern with your front leg. Uh, and, you know, uh, for, for the stretchy movement you end on, you also don't want to, you don't want that to be super heavy. Like you want, you want it to be something where you can focus more on the stretch than am I strong enough just to complete the reps um, but yeah, that, that approach, um, so the, the approach I'm generally describing probably isn't strictly speaking ideal for strength. So, uh, you know, powerlifters listening to this might be, might be hearing me and saying like, oh no, like if I did, uh, a couple sets of 20 to 30 reps relatively, relatively close to failure for like a pump type triceps exercise, my bench training that comes after, like, I might have to take 5 10% off my training loads. And, like, yeah, you, you probably will. Um, and that's, that's another, you know, again, for the purpose of, like, trying to keep your joints happy. If you can uh, stress all of your target muscles just as hard, um, but not have to expose them to quite as much load, that might be preferable. Um so like, yeah, th this is just kind of, it's advice for people who are trying to stay in the gym, trying to still train hard, uh, but maybe not necessarily for the, for the sole purpose of uh, maximizing strength performance at all costs. So like it, it comes with trade-offs. This is more talking about kind of just like hypertrophy and quote unquote, like general health type resistance training. Um but yeah, uh, th I, I do, <laughs> my training looks a lot more like this a lot of the time these days, um, especially like, uh, my, like I said, my, my friend asked me about like a creaky elbow. Um, like this is how I do all of, all of my, my arm and upper body training. Now my elbows used to be basically bulletproof, like nothing ever bothered them. And then I broke my arm last year. And ever since then, my left elbow just doesn't like me as much as, as it used to. Um, so yeah, I, I take an approach very similar to this now. Uh, and it's, it's been huge for me. Cause like previously after an upper body training day, 
like my left elbow would hurt during training and it would hurt the day after training. Uh, but now like I, I approach my upper body training this way. My elbow does not hurt during training, does not hurt after training. Uh, it's good stuff. So, you know, that's, uh, that's my little coach's corner. So just to reiterate, step one, pump type work, both sides of the joint. If you're talking about the elbows, biceps, and triceps, you're talking about the hips, maybe start with something like uh, body weight or very light hip thrusts, and then also maybe some leg raises, like something for the hip flexors and the abs. Um, for the knees, you're talking about both quads and hamstrings, like so some some sort of, for shoulders uh, or like chest training, maybe start with flies. But again, you don't want to take it to an extreme end range of motion. So, you know, like high rep flies stopping before you get that stretch. And then maybe if you want to do more stretchy flies, do that at the end of your of your workout. Uh, so you, you might want to start with both flies and rear delt raises if you're talking about warming up your shoulders for chest training. Um, so that's step one, just high, high rep pump training across both sides of the joint, then just train like normal and then end with some sort of, uh, kind of strength exercise that you can, that allows you to really, uh, sink into a stretch for whatever muscle you just trained, uh, to, to end your training. Um, to be clear, I don't want to make any any physiological claims about how this is going to affect the structure or function of any particular soft tissue, not making any any prehab or rehab claims or anything like that. Just in general, if this is a problem you're you're dealing with, it tends to feel nice. Uh and and training when you feel nice is good. Yeah, it's uh when, when you start, I was Googling something as you were talking because this got me thinking. I was like, you know, back in the day uh, around 2012, 2013, I started doing hamstring curls before my squats. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I think I might have got that from John Meadows. You probably did. And so I was Googling it and I did. Yeah. And I, I was looking at an, an article he wrote about it. And in the article, he said in two different spots, and this is a short article. I don't know why it works. He's, I don't know why it works, and I do not have scientific evidence. Yeah. This is not science. Yeah. This is shit I do that feels good. Yeah. And uh, and I think that's an important thing in like the whole evidence based fitness world is like, it is okay. Like it, it, there is nothing wrong with saying like, hey, this is like something that is not dangerous, is not deleterious. It seems to work nice, and I don't have scientific evidence for it. Yeah. Do with that what you will. No, like th that's something that I've talked about a lot before. Like I, I think um, like I mean, the, the key, for example, earlier in this episode is is a great example of that. Like I think a lot of people get themselves in trouble because they are unwilling to have the intellectual humility to say like, hey, this thing seems good. Like it, 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 uh, it it's a practical approach. That seems to work for me. And, uh, you know, if you're having similar problems to the ones I'm having, maybe it's worth you experimenting with it as well. Like, that's that's a perfectly valid thing to say. Um, it's a very intellectually honest way to approach things where there's not a ton of conclusive evidence one way or the other. Uh, or just not any direct research at all. Um, 
And I, I think people are, <laughs> are unwilling to do that because they maybe think it makes them sound dumb or like less serious, or they think that uh, people won't take their advice as seriously uh, unless they make it seem like everything they say has a ton of supporting evidence. But no, I, I think it's important to be able to be honest about what level of evidence supports the things you say. Um, and if it is just purely anecdotal, just say, this shit's anecdotal. Seems nice. Um, but yeah, like the 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 carb night stuff. If Kiefer just came out and said like, yeah, man, like if you're struggling with like food fixation through the day and, and controlling your total calorie intake, yeah, mostly just eat protein through the day. Try eating some carbs at night. Seems to work pretty well for me. Give it a shot. I don't think anyone would have been upset about it, but that was a very controversial dietary approach uh, because he went out on a limb and said like, yes, like this is going to be magical for these reasons. And it was just like completely bullshit, like massively over extrapolated, like basic physiology stuff that didn't actually support the claims he was making. And like, I feel that I feel that same way about um, about like paleo stuff, like as far as kind of like popular fad diets go, uh, the the general dietary approach that paleo folks recommend is is perfectly reasonable. It's yeah. like, yeah, you know, mostly stick to unprocessed foods when possible. Um, <laughs> I mean, there are so many different schools of paleo, but like that's basically it. Um, yeah. <laughs> like that's perfectly reasonable dietary advice, but... You know, then when they say, and, and this is going to work the best for performance, for health, for everything, because, like, this is what we evolved to eat. And then, like, more uh, anthropological and paleontolo paleontological evidence comes out showing, like, oh, yeah, the way you said Paleolithic people ate, yeah, you're full of shit. They didn't eat that. Like, then paleo folks have egg on their face because it's like, oh, yeah, you said this thing is good for these reasons. Turns out the reasons... Uh, are wrong and you're an idiot but like the general advice they're giving is often like decent advice yeah uh, and if they just stuck with the decent advice of like yeah you know if possible eat less processed foods um well i guess that's not the best example because there is like direct evidence on eating less processed foods but like you you get my point yeah you know just just be honest about the level of evidence you have supporting something and in my case for my coach's corner segment i don't have evidence other than Feels nice for me. Seemed like it felt nice for John Meadows. Uh, maybe it will feel nice for you. Yeah. And, and just to reiterate, there, there's just like some little qualifiers, this whole approach of like, yeah, it works for me. I'm going to go ahead and recommend it to people. Like it's important to accurately present the amount of support uh, or lack of support for that idea. It's important that the idea does not have... Uh, reasonable potential to be harmful or del deleterious right so it's it's very different to say like hey like you're probably going to be pretty good in terms of your dietary goals if you generally pick stuff from this whole genre of foods versus like you know just straight up orthorexia inducing propaganda right yeah, like yeah. the second you deviate from the paleo foods like you're you're gonna get sick dude like that's really bad yeah like so th there there's a fine line between you know it, it, it's got to be uh stuff that is doesn't have potential to be truly deleterious or harmful but also like the thing that drives me nuts about anecdotes that are shared in this context is 
again, when people just are unable to say like, hey, this is anecdotal. Like when, when people take these anecdotes and then just reach for the closest science available and say, actually, this is evidence-based science uh, that I'm giving you. It's like, yeah, it's not though. So as, as long as people are kind of putting out the right caveats and not recommending things that are reckless, like this yeah. kind of anecdotal stuff certainly has a place in filling in the gaps with, with, uh, with the way we approach training and nutrition. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I, I would say it even goes like maybe even a step beyond that because something that I have observed happening and I, I'm not going to, I'm yeah, no, I don't feel like doing that. I'm not going to name specific people or call out like specific concepts where I've seen this, but a not uncommon dynamic that I see from time to time is maybe someone does make an initial claim, uh, that they make in a circumspect and intellectually honest way. They say like, hey, I tried this thing, worked pretty well for me. Eh, you know, maybe you give it a shot too if you're experiencing uh, similar things. And, you know, so the, the first iteration of it is totally good. And then, you know, they have a reasonably large audience and, um, you know, some some portion of those people uh, uh, try out that piece of advice. And then, you know, they this individual maybe posts about the same thing again. And, and I'm not, I don't have one specific person in mind. Like th this is a pattern I've, I've witnessed multiple times across multiple different topics. But yeah, so the, the original poster like posts something again, like, hey, th this thing I posted about a couple weeks ago, still doing it, still seems to be pretty nice for me. And then in their comment section, you see quite a few comments of people in their audience saying like, oh yeah, like that's awesome. I tried it too. And you were, you were right. This is awesome. It works so well. And like, maybe you see one or two dissenters, but it's like mostly very positive feedback. Like, yeah, dude, like you're, you're absolutely on the right track here. That was great advice. And then over time, it kind of morphs from, hey, I tried this thing and it felt nice to... I recommended this thing. Hundreds of people have tried it and it seems like almost universally it's incredible for them. So, you know, there's, there's, there's not like a scientific study on it, but look, look at all of this like real world in the trenches evidence. Like th this thing, like it's, it's a, sh it's a sure thing. Like the, the amount of uh, positive stories about this is, is just overwhelming at this point. And I can certainly understand why someone would go that route, uh, but I would I would caution against it if you, dear listener, are ever in this situation uh, for a couple reasons. One is that um, most of the time, like even if you don't do this intentionally, like you you tend to attract people to you who have similar characteristics to you. So just just kind of like by by default. If you recommend something to your audience, your your audience is probably more similar to you than they would be to a random sample of the general population. And so something that uh, maybe, say, only works for a minority of people and you being in that minority, people in your audience are probably also disproportionately likely to be in that minority. So just from the jump, you're not starting with a representative sample. Uh, and two, it's it, it can become a thing where if you talk about something frequently, people for whom 
that thing works well will tend to gravitate towards you just uh you know because because people like being told that they're right about things and don't like being told that they're wrong about things so you know if if people try your advice and it doesn't work well for them they'll probably just stop following you over time so you'll get less negative feedback from them and uh as, as other people try this stuff and uh you know, it works well for them, they'll be more likely to follow you. So as you promote an idea, just just kind of through the natural flow of people through social networks, you will accrue an audience that is even less representative than it was previously, that's like basically cherry-picked to make everything you say sound really good. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, like the the observation that hey I, I put this out in the world and it seems to work for a lot of people that may be true but that's still not good evidence that it works for most people um because like over over time like you unintentionally build an echo chamber like whether you mean to or not so uh yeah if if you ever see that dynamic and play on social media just just kind of keep that in mind uh and if you're listening to this and you're like an influencer with a sizable audience and you ever start kind of like feeling this dynamic taking place, uh, following advice you give within your audience, um, yeah, also keep this in mind and, and try to be a bit more circumspect about it. Good advice. Yeah. All right. Uh, I want to drop a little bit of of the good stuff here, some some science, breaking out of more of the applied anecdotal realm. I do want to briefly touch on one topic that is going to specifically dive into some research. Um, I briefly want to, I'm going to address like half of a Q&A. Uh, so one of the things that comes up all the time in Q&As is basically, uh, hey, I'm going to diet and I don't want to lose lean mass and I don't want to lose strength. What should I do? And I think that, um, I think we've covered the nutrition side of that pretty extensively over the years of articles and, and podcasting. Uh, if you go to strongerbyscience.com slash diet, uh, there's a very comprehensive look into it. But the basics uh, on the nutrition side are pretty straightforward. Um, you want to retain lean mass. You want to retain your performance to the best of your ability. Uh, certainly, you want to make sure you're eating enough protein spread across you know, somewhere between three to six servings per day, ideally. Uh, you don't want to go too fast with your weight loss, um, you know, somewhere between 0.25 to 1% of body weight per week. Uh, and the, the leaner or the more advanced you are as a lifter or the more concerned you are about lean mass losses, the more you would err toward a slower rate of weight loss. So 1% of body weight per week could be totally fine for lean mass retention if you've got plenty of body fat to lose. You know, you're, you're kind of beginner to intermediate with your lifting, eating plenty of protein. If you are, you know, elite natural bodybuilder, absolutely shredded toward the end of your prep, you do not want to be losing 1% of body weight per week. That is very likely to start getting into a range that's a little bit too quick based on the context. Um, so that's the nutrition and rate of weight loss side, which is fairly straightforward um, you know, Garth and colleagues in 2011, that's one of the classic papers demonstrating how going a little bit too fast with your weight loss uh, in, in really high level athletes can start to impair 
you know, changes in body composition, changes in performance. When it comes to training, this is something we've talked about on the podcast before. Uh, and I want to frame it as a very specific problem statement because this is how a lot of people approach it. So I'm not cutting yet. You know, I'm about as strong as I've ever been. I'm performing well, fueling my workouts. Everything's going well. Congrats, dude. Yeah, thank you. And right now for some random exercise, I'm able to do four sets of eight with about 200 pounds. Uh, and, you know, you know, that might fluctuate day to day. It might be a slight positive, uh, you know, trajectory because I'm doing progressive overload. And, and not everyone can do delt raises with that much weight, but Eric's a freak. So exactly. you know, th this is just his personal example. Dude, speaking of that, I saw a video on Instagram the other day. Have you ever seen Bo Jackson's first hit in the major leagues? No. Dude, he hits a crisp chopper to the gap between first and second base. Mm -hmm. The second baseman fields it cleanly. Bo runs it out. Whew. It's it's just a freaking chopper to the second baseman. No one's like fumbling to cover the base. He just runs out a hard hit to the second baseman. That's ridiculous. An infield hit. Bo knows baseball. I, I thought it was a doctored video, honestly. <laughs> I checked. Uh, but anyway, so I'm able to do four by eight with 200 pounds. As this cut progresses, most likely there's going to be a point where I can no longer do four sets of eight with 200 pounds, uh, depending on how aggressive the cut is and how much ground I'm trying to cover. But I might get to a point where now if I'm using 200 pounds, I'm only able to do eight and then six and then five and five, you know, instead of eight, 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 eight. So a lot of people within that problem statement say, what, what's my best strategy here? Should I... For example, reduce set volume. Am I trying to do too many sets in my workouts? And it's, you know, because I have lower recovery capacity. Should I keep the load that I'm using? And instead of trying to do sets of eight, maybe I'm trying to do sets of six, you know? Um, so should I be, or should I keep trying to do four sets of eight with the same relative difficulty and drop the load? So instead of doing four by eight with 200, now I'm doing it with 185 and it's going okay. So the question is, what do I do here uh, to most effectively uh, preserve my strength or preserve my fat-free mass? And specifically with this, I want to talk about fat-free mass. So should I be dropping uh, the rep range a little bit? Should I be dropping some set volume? Should I be dropping the load to make this a little bit more feasible? Uh, this is a question we've talked about before, and uh, we've mentioned how we're, we're both kind of a bit surprised that there's simply not direct research on this that we're aware of. Yeah. That, that really, really specifically shows if you're cutting, here is the blueprint blueprint for managing your training variables to best retain muscle mass or fat-free mass. Like yeah. to our knowledge, that doesn't exist. Yeah. We don't even have one blueprint and in other fields, they have the blueprint two, the blueprint three. <laughs> Perfect. We're, we're really behind in this area. Um, so yeah, we've talked about this before on the show. We've said, listen, if you want an evidence-based statement, I don't have much for you. If you want kind of a practical applied statement that involves some speculation, you know, my personal approach in this situation is I generally, as a cut starts getting really brutal, I start to reduce my repetition ranges a little bit. 
and I start to cut my set volume a little bit, especially for some of the ancillary kind of, uh, you know, my, my assistance exercises or my auxiliary exercises. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what I notice is, first of all, you, you start getting, like, let's say the, the, the experience I'm drawing on here is deep into a contest prep. Uh, I don't have the glycogen to give you a good set of, I, certainly not to give you four good sets of 12, yeah. right? It's not there. I, I'm cutting, my carbs are low. It's just gone. And so in that context, I like to drop my rep ranges so that I can at least lean harder on my phosphocreatine system and my glaring lack of glycogen won't become quite as apparent in my performance of my exercises. So I like to make my rep ranges a little bit more compatible with the energy systems that I can still kind of reliably lean on. I drop my set volume because like, if you've ever had a high volume program, you start to know when you're getting into what some people would colloquially call junk volume, where at a certain point you're like, why am I still in the gym? Like this is this is kind of nonsense what I'm doing here. Yeah. When you're deep into prep, you reach that point pretty early in a workout. If you try to maintain the same number of exercises and sets and yeah, you know, if you keep everything the same, that point where you start to say, am I actually doing anything here? It comes a lot earlier in the workout. So for that reason, I like to drop my set volume a little bit so that I'm being as efficient as I can with really high quality effort in the gym. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is some evidence to suggest uh, that when it comes to change to gains in fat-free mass and muscle mass, uh, you know, the volume it took to build that muscle may not necessarily be as much as it takes to maintain that muscle. Uh, you know, there there have been fairly long-term longitudinal trials where they have a muscle building phase where they gain some muscle with a relatively higher volume program, and they can actually maintain it pretty effectively when they cut that volume down a little bit, as long as intensity remains high. Mm-hmm. So for that cluster of reasons, my general approach, would, which I would not say is like conclusively the best way to do it, But the way that I find most favorable is to trim my repetition ranges a little bit uh, and cut my set volume a little bit, especially for some of the less critical exercises in my program. But one of the reasons I wanted to address this topic is because there is recently a systematic review by Roth and colleagues, um, and it's called Lean Mass Sparing in Resistance Trained Athletes During Caloric Restriction, the Role of Resistance Training Volume. Um, And one of the reasons I wanted to uh, get into this is because it kind of takes the form of a bit of a systematic review. So uh, they mentioned that they did like a systematic literature search uh, and kind of dive into this topic in a general sense. And I, I don't want it to seem like I'm being super critical of the paper, right? So in terms of just like writing a review paper, they bring up some interesting perspectives. They discuss it in a thorough way. They talk about some mechanisms. Uh, they present a perspective that isn't 100% compatible with the perspective that I just shared, but that's okay. Uh, you know, Like I said, when there's a lack of direct evidence, there are going to be conflicting opinions that are, in many cases, all justifiable. You know, as, as long as they're based on something, they can be justified. The reason I wanted to bring up this paper, though, is it does kind of take the form of a systematic review. And I think a lot of people might 
take the conclusion from it and say, oh, damn, this is high-level evidence on the hierarchy of evidence. So the hierarchy of evidence, you know, we've, we've talked about it before, I believe, on the podcast, but it's basically a way of organizing different types of observations and published research and saying, which of these carries more weight, uh, which of these has higher quality of evidence and lower risk of bias. And so you start with like, kind of an editorial or a narrative review, which is just somebody who's writing a paper and saying, I've got some shit I want to say about this topic and I'm going to say it. And that's pretty much the entire set of guardrails for a narrative review. Yeah. Uh, you know, you just write some stuff. If the reviewers like it, hey, that's science, baby. I'm going to throw out a hot take that I've mentioned on the podcast before and I still stand by it. A narrative review is a blog post. Yes. Yeah. It's in a, but uh, in a... That, that, that two people signed off on. And in a blog that's very hard to edit. Correct. <laughs> yeah, you, not easy to make a quick update. Sorry, I had a typo. Yeah. Uh, that'll be fixed in nine months. Yeah. Uh, and I'll have to issue a, a big apology. Yeah. And, and uh, the, the fact that you made a typo will, will forever be in the erratum section of your CV. So <laughs> yeah. maybe there are structural incentives against ever making corrections, but yeah, whatever. So we've got those. And then we've got mechanistic studies, maybe in rodents and a, you know, a cell culture. Yeah. Uh, where we under we start to understand how stuff works, but it may not generalize to a person, a living human being. Also, sorry, just to make clear, I don't want to make it sound like I'm throwing shade at narrative reviews because I'm not throwing shade at blog posts. I'm a blogger. I think blogs <laughs> yeah. can be good. I just think that, uh, yeah, w w once you once you start getting into the the realm of narrative reviews, the uh, presumed bright line between published research and blogging gets gets very fuzzy um, yeah but yeah th there are a lot of tremendously valuable narrative reviews uh and i i don't i don't want to make it sound like i don't think there are yeah it's yeah we've both been in the situation where we we like write a blog post and someone's like hey why don't you submit this to a journal so it actually matters and counts and yeah. we're like i mean i've i've published narrative reviews i would have written this the same way they just would have told me to like write in a more passive tone yeah this is this is what the article would have been and it would have gotten 120th as many reads exactly yeah but anyway so we've we've got those narrative reviews then we've got mechanistic studies and then case studies or case reports moving up to cross-sectional studies up to case control studies into cohort studies and then into randomized controlled trials where we're actually able to experimentally control some of these variables and do, you know, really well-controlled interventions where we can start making some pretty nice claims about causation with a, a decent level of confidence. And then at the top of this hierarchy, that's where we start to find systematic reviews and meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials. They are at the top of the hierarchy, which is which suggests they have the highest quality of evidence and the lowest risk of bias. Um, but it's really important to recognize that this, uh, hierarchy of evidence is basically a heuristic, you know, it's, it's a general indicator of how we make sense of different types of research, but it does not mean that the first time a systematic review that puts forward a conclusion comes out like, oh, well, glad we solved that. Now we've answered it, you know? So my, my concern is that since 
this recent paper seems kind of like a systematic review and has a systematic literature search and, and study coding and all that stuff that people are going to say, oh, damn, I guess we answered this question. That's great. Uh, because I think when we call something a systematic review, it assigns a particular weight to it uh, that we have to be very cautious about when we're interpreting. So, uh, for example, um, I was looking at a paper by Garg and colleagues, uh, and this was from a, a study on, or from a journal that, that's focused on renal, like kidney research. And a little clip that I saw in there was, uh, they were talking about systematic reviews being good, but they also mentioned, uh, however, uh, important methodologic flaws of systematic reviews uh, have been well described. And for example, of the 86 renal systematic reviews published in 2005, 58% had important methodologic flaws. So they are systematic reviews. So you look at the title, you look at the abstract and say, oh, damn, this is the highest level of evidence. Um, but, but that does not mean that you just look for the closest systematic review, look for the conclusion, and that's that. You've got your answer. Uh, so they did provide, which I thought was really helpful, uh, a checklist for questions to ask when you're assessing the quality of a systematic review. One, was the review conducted according to a pre-specified protocol? Two, was the question focused and well-formulated, the research question? Three, were the right types of studies eligible for the review? Four, was the method of identifying all relevant informa information comprehensive? Uh, so, for example, is it likely that they missed some relevant studies or that uh, you know, perhaps they didn't consider publication bias. Number five, was the data abstraction from each study appropriate? Uh, were the methods used in each individual study appraised and actually, you know, considered in the synthesis of this information? Uh, and then number six, along those lines, was the information synthesized and summarized appropriately? Uh, and, and was it even reasonable to kind of lump these things together in the first place, whether that's uh, qualitative or quantitative in terms of how this evidence is lumped together and synthesized to form conclusions. So you might be wondering, Eric, why are we digging into the text of a renal journal? What the hell are we talking about here? Well, I'm, I'm not going to lie. As the co-host, I have forgotten what the main, the main topic exactly. of this segment yeah. was already. <laughs> yes. So again, we're talking about how am I supposed to train in order to retain lean mass during uh, yes. a cut? Ah, uh, yes. And my concern is that people will see this paper and say, oh, that's a systematic review. That settles that. That's the highest level of evidence. We're all good. It's critically important to recognize that this is a systematic review of zero randomized controlled trials that directly answer that question. Yeah. So despite the fact that you say, oh, systematic review, high level evidence, a systematic review can only provide informative answers when the studies involved directly, uh, you know, provide evidence related to that research question. Yeah, in theory, uh, you know, the the sum the sum of a systematic review is at least related to the whole of its parts. Where right. you know, if if there's a lot of high quality evidence in an area, a systematic review that you know. One makes the readers aware of all of the evidence in the area and does a really good job synthesizing it can add a tremendous amount of value. But you know, if there if there's not that, uh, a systematic review may be able to add value to 
effectively nothing, but the the upper limits of of the additive value it can provide uh, is necessarily constrained. Yeah. So uh, the the reason I bring all this stuff up is the topic at hand of you know how should I be adjusting these training variables during cutting to preserve lean mass has not really been directly studied and. I think the researchers, uh, like I said, they wrote a nice paper. They went into a lot of interesting topics, uh, presented the evidence well. Um, but this is not, in the strictest terms, a systematic review investigating that question uh, because there, there aren't the underlying data do not directly address that question. You could theoretically get at it indirectly if you could look at this group of studies from the review and say, yeah, the only real major thing differentiating these studies is the way that they adjusted these particular uh, training variables, in this case, training volume. So you'd have to have some degree of confidence that there are not major confounding factors, other important factors from these studies that are influencing the conclusions drawn. Uh, so in this case, my primary concerns about whether or not this paper directly addresses the question is the research question itself was a little bit ambiguous. They, they talked a lot about volume as a mechanism of preserving lean mass, but there were some studies looking at high volume versus low volume programs and other studies looking at increasing volume over time versus decreasing volume over time. So the amount of absolute volume versus relative change in volume. There are kind of these dueling research questions that were intermingled a little bit. Um, some of the terms such as reducing and increasing training volume weren't really um, defined very explicitly in quantifiable terms, which made categorizing them a little bit difficult. Um, and so, for, for example, in one instance, uh, a paper was categorized as a volume reduction study it had two training blocks and training volume went up over time from block one to block two, but it was considered a volume reduction study because there was a deload between the blocks. And they said, because volume went down in the deload, that is a volume reduction program, even though overall volume did go up over time. Um, there was a mixture of studies with participants of different training status. Um, so for example, looking at, oh, and, and just the magnitude of weight loss changed a lot. So in some cases, they were make, they were hoping to make inferences about how training volume impacts the loss of lean mass while cutting, but they're comparing a very modest amount of weight loss in relatively untrained folks or, or you know, moderately trained folks versus a case study of a bodybuilder cutting it for a show, getting shredded. Yeah. So we're talking about losing a couple kilograms when you've got plenty of kilograms to lose versus getting absolutely shredded. And fat-free mass loss and contest prep is, is the rule, not the exception. When we look at the case studies on male uh, bodybuilders cutting for shows, drug-tested, fat-free mass losses are usually observed and often quite substantial. Another example is, you know, looking at short-term changes in fat-free mass with a mixture of keto studies and non-keto studies, obviously based on the, the randomized controlled trials with keto studies, you're going to expect in the first few weeks that we have an initial drop in fat-free mass that is largely due to a drop in water and glycogen, most likely. Yeah. Um, so all of that is to say, I think, uh, 
I wanted to get out ahead of the idea that this is now a settled question because there's a systematic review on it. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, diminish the effort of the authors because, like I said, I think the paper as a narrative review very much accomplishes what a narrative review would want to do. It says, hey, here's this question. We don't have direct evidence. Let's try to piece together some related studies and see if we can draw some inferences for now and basically generate hypotheses. So I think it was an excellent paper for generating hypotheses, but I think it, it does lend itself to some misinterpretation because it is kind of framed as a systematic review. So Getting back to it, you know, I kind of mentioned how I like to approach training when I'm cutting. Uh, that is uh, a loosely evidence-informed speculative approach. You know, I, I think it's it's rooted in ideas that come from evidence, but I can't call it an evidence-based statement, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I would encourage people to reserve judgment and not just say, well, there's a systematic review. Looks like the answer uh, is is clear now. Uh, I don't think that's the case, but I do appreciate and commend the authors for, if nothing else, bringing awareness to the fact like there is no direct research on this and it is an extremely applicable question. So my my hope is that researchers are going to see this and say, hey, we ought to do a randomized controlled trial and start getting to the bottom of this. Yeah. All right. Uh, what do you got to close out the show here? Do you want to do your random segment? Yeah, yeah. Th so th this is a segment that, uh, you know, wouldn't fit under any of the general classifications we use on the show. It's certainly not a research review, not a research roundup, not really a coach's corner. So yeah, just random segments. Uh, we'll call this the shout out segments. Well, this um, this is a, we're revisiting a segment that we tried and well, swiftly it's not, abandoned. It's not really. Yeah. Yeah. So we used to have a segment called On the Rise where. Oh, yeah where I, I would ask people to, uh, you know, let me know if there were uh, people coming up on social media who maybe weren't getting as much attention as they deserved, uh, and to send those people in, and I'd check out their content, and if it was good, shout them out. Um, that, <laughs> that was abandoned for a couple of reasons. One was that there was very little audience participation. Um, people didn't send in as many folks as I, I expected them to. Uh, two, there there were very clear uh, campaigns that occurred where, you know, someone who listens to our podcast would tell their audience like, oh, yeah, yeah, suggest me. Um, and like some of those people were fine. Some of them, I was like, why do you listen to our podcast? Uh, <laughs> and uh, then the third and probably most important factor is I'm very lazy. Uh, and... I, I So one of the issues I ran into early on was I was like, mm, well, how much of this person's content do I need to review? Because if it's like five, like the five most recent posts, like I can do that. But, you know, if someone maybe had like a real stinker, like not even that far back, like 15 posts back or something, it'd be like, well, mm, I don't know if I want to go this route. And I'll tell you the thing that really killed it uh, was COVID. <laughs> Because a lot of people who uh, were giving good advice in the fitness realm were giving more questionable advice in other contexts, and I was like, "Yep, I'm, yeah, I'm shelving this segment." The fitness and virology <laughs> sectors kind of merged there for a minute. Yeah, so uh, uh, you know, and one of the things that, <laughs> like, kind of what you're alluding to with one of those points is like when you. 
like I, I'm, I have certainly no reservations about saying like, oh man, look at this great article. This is a great article. Everyone should read this article or check out this video. This is very nice. But when you're kind of recommending a person, a person, yeah. it's like, it's like, uh, could be perceived as essentially a blank check. Yeah. And, and like, it's like, yeah, I, I'm sure that they've never said anything that's terrible. They've never had content that is like just indefensibly incorrect you know now now that you mention that memories are flooding back to me about how that segment went and i i remember i started giving all of those caveats and i fear that it came across as like wow this person's fitness stuff is decent but they're probably a shitty person yeah so. sorted history <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah it, it was just like i mean i basically had to say this person seems to have good fitness content, but I can't vouch for them as a person, which like is completely honest. Uh, but also it implies that it's like, it, oh man. I yeah. And, and like, I wasn't trying to imply that, but I, I don't know how to state that in a way that wouldn't <laughs> potentially carry that implication. Um, so yeah, yeah. It got away from that segment. So this, this is not a return of on the rise. Cause all, all of these people are already, uh, they have uh, risen. Yeah. They're, they're well established, but, um, yeah, I, I wanted to give some shout outs to people who are out there on social media uh, doing great work um, and like like putting out good good information uh, in a sea awash with disinformation and misinformation um, who I think that our audience doesn't have a ton of overlap with. So, you know, like I think that our audience has quite a bit of overlap with like uh, Eric Helms and Omar's audience and the Iron Culture podcast audience, uh, the Barbell Medicine audience. Uh, I think we have a lot of overlap with like Andy Morgan's audience. Um, but there there are uh, people who I follow who I don't see mentioned as frequently in kind of stronger by science groups and channels. Um who, uh, yeah, I, th I think more of you guys should probably be following. And so the person I'm going to lead off with, uh, and what actually inspired this, uh, this segment is in the most recent Q&A threads, someone asked uh, what we thought about Ben Patrick, who is also known on Instagram as knees over toes guy. Um, like, does he put out good information or is he a fraud? Uh, and I was like, ah, you know what? Guy actually puts out solid, solid information. Uh, don't want to just talk about him, so let's let's just kind of make a segment out of this. Um, but yeah, so I'll I'll start with him, Ben Patrick, otherwise known as Knees Over Toes Guy, uh, and I think that he's a bit controversial, not due to the information he presents, but due to the way that he presents it. So I I do think that he tends to be a bit hyperbolic in his presentation. He'll say like, oh yeah, like here here's this approach to. Uh, training to improve knee health and resiliency. And this is, um, you know, uh, uh, super revolutionary stuff. No one else is doing this. Um, and, and that's kind of like the selling point. Like, here's this cutting edge shit that, that I'm on and no one else is. Um, and that, that might be like slightly overstating how hyperbolic he is, but that's like kind of the tone. Um, and like that bit isn't true. <laughs> like most of the stuff he's recommending is just good, solid, evidence-based info that uh, physical therapists and rehab professionals have been using for years. Um, but he he packages it and presents it in a way that is interesting, engaging, and informative for the general public um, who may otherwise 
not want to do some of that stuff because you know like uh, with you know when it comes to kind of like rehab exercises unless you are unless you have some sort of serious injury or like major pre-existing issue um it's easy to look at that stuff and be like ah no like that's boring i just want to go squat heavy and so it's it's sometimes hard to convince people to do things that would be good for them and i think that he's very good at that so he's uh he's putting out solid information uh, in a way that maybe is a bit hyperbolic, but the quality of the information and the ad- advice he gives is is generally quite high. Um, so yeah, uh, he he is certainly worth a follow. Um, moving on, the next person I'd recommend is Ben Carpenter. So um, he he talks about all sorts of subjects, but I think what he's probably most well known for is uh, calling out and debunking bad information that's going around social media and there are there are a lot of people who do that but i think that ben is particularly good at it um both in terms of making his points in 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 a concise and informative way uh and in a way that's that's often quite funny um so you know if if that's something that interests you uh he is a very solid follow um, moving on, I, I mentioned I think that our audience has quite a bit of overlap with Barbell Medicine. person I'm going to recommend is now a Barbell Medicine coach, but uh, I started following her when she was not. So I still think of her as kind of her own thing. And, you know, not to imply that if you coach for a company, you are now just that company. You've been absorbed into the Borg. Uh, but yeah, whatever. I'm just rambling at this point. Clear as I. Yeah, we let our coaches have interests. We let them spend time with their families. Some, yeah, yeah, they yeah. don't just like become, uh, you know, part of the company. They still Correct. function independently to, as people. to some extent. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no. So Claire Zai is a very solid follow uh, on social media, Instagram particularly. Uh, like I said, she's she's a coach for Barbell Medicine these days, and uh, she puts out really good in- information just about. Uh, training in general like she tends to be pretty focused on that uh, and also female specific issues around uh, strength training so uh, a lot of stuff about uh, the menstrual cycle in particular uh, so she's a very very solid follow uh, and last but certainly not least uh, Emma Story Gordon who um, I don't know I think that our spheres used to overlap quite a bit more and and now they don't um but yeah she's she's a tremendous follow uh mostly on instagram giving weight loss advice and there are plenty of people on instagram giving weight loss advice but i think that she's particularly good at it because most of the information she gives is very evidence-based and and practical uh without being off-puttingly sciencey and by that i mean I recognize that this podcast for, probably not this episode of this podcast, but by and large, this podcast uh, is is probably off-puttingly sciencey for some non-trivial percentage of people. Um, so, you know, if, if you wanted to uh, recommend folks for advice to, you know, someone in your family who doesn't know anything about resistance training, it's like, ah, you know, f- follow these people for, for good practical advice. Maybe you wouldn't recommend our podcast because you're like, yeah, these these guys, uh, the the stuff they're saying might like go over people's heads. So what Emma's really good at is is she's 
good at giving uh, uh, like science-based recommendations and advice in a way that won't go over people's heads. Um, and and yeah, so it's it's very it's very practical. And um, also, uh, she tends to present things in a way that is kind of more empathetic and less judgmental than you will often see uh, from people who do focus a lot on giving weight loss advice. Um, so yeah, she's she is a very solid follow as well. Would would strongly recommend. So when you say that she's not off-puttingly sciencey, does that mean she will not read you six points on how to appraise a systematic review? Uh, yeah, probably so. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like she she knows her stuff. Like she, yeah, like yeah. There there's there's different forms of science communication, and I, she definitely does a different form of scientific communication than we do. Um, One might say better. What? <laughs> You know, <laughs> one might, one might. Um, that's okay. Yeah. Um, all right. So that's a great list. Hopefully people will check them out. Uh, what do you have to play us out? Yeah. So uh, to play us out has recently just turned into a, a media, a media review and recommendation segment. Uh, but I got another good one this week. And that is a Hulu show called Under the Banner of Heaven. It is based on a I believe 2003 John Krakauer book by the same name. And uh, the book is about uh, some murders that took place in the Mormon community and also uh, delving into, um, you know, some of maybe the less talked about uh, uh, aspects of the history of Mormonism. And the show is, is very much following kind of the same, the same line uh, it's it's starring Andrew Garfield, who does a tremendous job. It's it's a very well acted show. I think it's I think it's going to be six episodes, maybe, and we're through episode three or four. Um, so far, it's really good. I'm less concerned about this show sticking the landing um, because I know it comes from a book, and you know th they don't have to worry about how it's going to wrap up because like it's a real story. Um, and also. I want to make clear with this recommendation, um, you know, I, I got, I got nothing but love for most Mormons. Uh, I don't like the, the, it's, it's a piece of media that could be interpreted as just critical of Mormonism in and of itself. We're not out here on this podcast trying to start religious conflict. Um, you know, I think most Mormons very cool. It's just a good piece of media. Uh, and, I also imagine most Mormons would probably not be fans of uh, the particular branch of Mormonism that is really put under the, the microscope uh, in this particular piece of media. But anyway, it's a great show called Under the Banner of Heaven, and uh, if that sounds good to you, you should check it out. I, n I don't want to... I know you're going to be upset. I don't have a, a show recommendation this week. Damn, I'm I, I'm shocked. I normally do, but <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> this week I'm stumped. Uh, no, I, I I watch a new show. You know, we've discussed it before. Once every several years, so I'm I'm kind of planning my next move and waiting for the right time. Uh, but but I have no idea what the next one's going to be. Um, you know what I do have an idea of. 
what the next episode we're going to release, which is going to be one week from today. What a segue. It's a great segue. As always, thank you for listening and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.